Hacker Culture FM is supported by 1Password. 1Password is an easy-to-use, secure password manager that gives you and your family that peace of mind. With 24-7 support and award-winning mobile apps, you can make sure that when you're sharing your Netflix passwords, it's all under lock and key. And since everyone on the HCFM team uses 1Password, we've teamed up with them to give you three months free for 1Password families. That's right, three whole months. You can sign up now by going to hackerculture.fm slash 1Password. That's hackerculture.fm forward slash the number one password. What I prefer is, is a job that we've got coming up where all I have is an address and a name. Uh, and that's all I have. Um, and we and I've given the client, we give them a sort of a, a window of, of a month or so. And I just say to them, at some point during that month, we will be in your building. From Hacker Culture FM, I'm Sean Sun, and you're listening to Security Sandbox, a podcast about the makers and breakers shaping cybersecurity. Every day, companies face threats from digital attackers, bad guys on the internet looking to score. Every day, teams of engineers make sure that they're keeping their company's digital assets locked down. They work tirelessly to make sure that these remote hackers have a hard time finding their way in. But there's another side to security, the physical side, the side that might sound a lot more like Ocean's Eleven than Mr. Robot, the side where you hack people, not computers, otherwise known as social engineering, the practice of manipulating humans in order to gain access to data, information, or finances. Jenny Radcliffe is my guest today. She is the founder and director of Human Factor Security, a cybersecurity firm in the UK that specializes in ethical social engineering. And to break in, she doesn't rely on her technical chops. Jenny uses psychology, linguistics, and pure cunning. Today's a story about paying attention to the human element. Jenny and I talk about how she's built her company, her career, and her reputation. So you are the CEO and founder of Human Factor Security. Can you let the audience know a little bit about what you all do there and what your day-to-day looks like? Wow. So our day-to-day changes an awful lot, but we specialize in the human element of security and in particularly uh, social engineering, persuasion, influence techniques. So we would typically be hired by a client to replicate a criminal attack on a business um, using different uh, associates. We have at different levels of expertise, but generally not a technical hack. So a human-based hack, uh, a psychologically uh, motivated attack that uses the people to gain access to the business. So uh, a lot of businesses typically put a lot of money into their cyber defenses, but there's the whole thing about people still being um, an access point. So we test that and then we educate the business as to how it was done. So I think sometimes if a, if I meet a grandma on a train and they ask me, I say I'm a burglar, uh, but security consultants focusing on the human side of things. How long do these engagements with these companies tend to last? It's difficult to say. I mean, it depends what they want. So certainly in the early days, it was, you know, just see if you can get past our receptionist and our security guards, you know, see if you can find a door that's not locked or a way to get in. And those type of assignments, we typically do a lot of reconnaissance and surveillance uh, prior to the event. And then I try and be in and out of a client office or site as quickly as we can. So, you know, we, we, we look to do that in 90 minutes and then perhaps a little bit more and then we write up the report. But then as the, um, the brand grew and as people got to know me more, 
the job became uh, more complex and we got more complex targets. And of course, with the growth of the uh, internet, OSINT, uh, Open Source Intelligence, helps us um, a lot with sort of preparing for a, a job and understanding what might make targets easier to uh, bypass from a human perspective. And so we typically spend some time, um, depends on the size of the job in the organization, the culture of the company, the people within it, and their kind of sort of levers and that type of thing. And then uh, again, and then go in however we can. But it's very similar to negotiation because if you're going to do a, a strategic, expensive, uh, important negotiation, that type of research on the company and the people you're going to be talking to uh, is also important. So the two kind of came together quite well. Um, but yeah, it, it sort of depends a little bit on the client, but typically uh, certainly a week or so, a few days on the uh, reconnaissance surveillance and OSINT side, day or two on site, uh, in and out in, in sort of short bursts if possible. Yeah. And then some reporting. I've heard you give a talk, thanks to the internet, about the sense of urgency when you only get paid through a successful engagement, that it's a psychological contract almost. Have you ever come close to messing up on site or in any part of the engagement? And how did you recover from that? <laughs> so, yeah. So, yes. And yes. I mean, uh, I like to think that uh, a lot of the time we're not busted. Um, and I you know a, a lot of engagements are you know, still uh, really kind of frighteningly easy. Um, one of my advantages was always that I physically don't look particularly dangerous. You know, I'm not, um, <clears throat> I don't look, I'm not a big tall guy who looks like I might be former military or police. <clears throat> I look very ordinary. Um, and I'm a woman as well. So people, you know, have certain prejudices in their minds that, you know, I mean, not women, I have to say, but a lot of security is still men. Um, and so I couldn't possibly be dangerous, right? Because I'm just this lady that's walking through their business. But uh, female security guards see that differently, which I which I kind of high five uh, those for being more observant. But um, so we are almost caught a couple of times. And I mean, I, you know, I can tell you, I mean, I can tell you a few of them. I've had um, an incident where we were in a, a very secure facility. We got in quite easily, even though the security on the outside was fairly strong. Um but once I was in there, there was a security guard who definitely was looking for us. Um, and I, you know, I've hidden in cupboards and on roofs and things sort of, I feel like my whole life, but there was one time and I was behind. So there was a corridor and the whole of the corridor was lined with cupboards, you know, so they were the like cloakroom area. And I could see this security guard kind of sort of ambling, sort of not walking too quickly, but really taking account of everyone he could see walking down the corridor and years and years of doing uh, the job alerts me to this. You know, it's like, he's looking for someone. It, it's, it's, you know, he's looking for me. He's looking, he doesn't know it is me, but he knows there's someone on site. And I had to open the door of the cloakroom and sort of stand behind it. And he actually stopped just on the other side of the door. So I could see through the crack of the door, the guy, and I could hear him on his radio, <clears throat> you know, and I could even, I mean, I was saying to um, someone I was talking to last week, I could even smell, uh, is cologne, right? I could smell his aftershave and, uh, and I could hear him talking about me. And it was one of those things that I couldn't really jump in the cupboard because that would have drawn attention. I couldn't really have walked away because he'd have asked me. And so there's this like standoff moment, you know, what's he going to do? Uh, and he kind of stopped for a while, spoke, and then he turned around and walked the other way. So how long did that moment last? Well, I mean, it felt like a lifetime, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but probably it was, pro- it, but it was probably two or three minutes. Um, because he kind of, he wasn't, he, he wasn't really a very fit guy, right? So he wasn't going to do any running or anything. And he kind of stopped and he was feeding back air. He was speaking on his radio and feeding back. So it would have been stood there at least a couple of minutes. And I could see his boots, you know, with the scuff marks on the toes and, uh, and his high vis jack. I could see his face, a part of his face through the crack. And I mean, if he'd have looked through that crack, he'd have seen me. He probably knew I was there. But he just mm-hmm. wasn't looking too carefully. And, and we've had lots of moments like that. And in the early days, I had lots of times when they'd see someone on site and we'd have to run. Um, and at that point, that's not really, you know, you're not you're not operating at the professional level we operate at now. But usually um, we're not caught. And usually, uh, even if someone stops us, we uh, kind of influence, we can talk and use linguistics and persuasion to kind of get out of it, even at the like final hurdle. Um, so maybe we say, you know, well done, you've spotted the assignment, you know, you've spotted there's an assessment, uh, you know, uh, what I need you to do is call this number now and say that you've seen us and then let us carry on. And of course, the number that they call is our office. They'll say, ah, it's, it's all absolutely fine. You need to let them carry on. Um, so that happens a couple of times. But in general, the idea is not to be spotted, uh, not to draw attention to yourself, uh, complete your objectives and get out. So uh, if we are interrupted, uh, we always go back. So one of the sort of foundations in the businesses is that we never fail and we don't fail because we, we don't stop until we manage to f- uh, finish the job, if, if you like. Um, and so even though we might be contracted just to do a couple of days on site, if we are interrupted and we can't complete it, we will go back with client permission as often as we need to until we do it. Um, and that's just professional pride mm-hmm. getting in the way right so if you are interrupted when you're on site you have a team to back you up right you have possibly another person who goes in maybe like a week or two later down the road is that true so we do it in, in a number of different ways i mean a lot of the time in the early days i was on my own and i still do uh, some assignments alone because <clears throat> obviously one person's a lot less visible than a team and it depends on what the client really wants i mean if they're really testing just can someone um you know, effectively burglarize them. Depending on the building, I'll do it on my own, but I do have a team. If it's a very tall building, so I tell a story about, I did a building in in London. We were asked to do the 42nd floor of a building. Now that's 84 flights of stairs, right? Because you're not going to use the elevators because they're full of cameras. So it's, you know, it's 42 floors up, two, two sets of stairs per floor. That is 84 flights of stairs. Now, I am not the fittest person in the world. <laughs> and over the years, I've fallen off roofs and I've banged into doors and, and my knees and everything are kind of knackered. Um, and so, you know, I would get someone younger to do those assignments for me, for sure. And I would control that remotely. Um, so, but we do have a team. And, and sometimes what we do is we send in a disposable B team um, initially so it, particularly if we think that the uh, the organisation is aware that there may be a test, and you know we try and keep this covert and keep it very um, private amongst the client and maybe the head of security, but it's a juicy thing in an organisation, right? If people get wind that there's going to be you know a team of people pulling this con within the organisation, they love it, you know they do, and um, it's hard to keep it quiet. So what we do sometimes is we have a B team who are still going to try and uh, complete the objectives, but if they get caught, they get caught. Um, and then we kind of, they'll maybe let us in or we'll go in a little bit later. 
And we've seen on a couple of occasions that B team being uh, caught by the security guards, you know, debriefing the client, doing the full thing. And we'll still be in there and we'll actually finish the job. So you have the client congratulating themselves that they've actually caught the social engineering team. And, and actually, we're still there. The real team's still there. And we, we often they're distracted and out of their office at that point And we'll go in and <laughs> do it that way. Um, but these are expensive things to do in a company. And not all companies need it, you know. But if I put a team of, if there's eight of us on, on a job, it's an expensive job. But... It can be worth it because 90% of breaches or so depend on, you know, whose data you believe. But certainly a very high percentage of breaches of all organizations are human-based. Um, and, and, you know, the fines and, and the reputational damage are huge. So we will, um, it's often considered worth it to see how we did it. And, and so we can show them how someone else might do it, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah, there's often a few of us on site. So for an organization looking to be more paranoid and be more aware of who's going in and out of their building or like who might be attacking them from a human element, what can they do? What can they, what signs can they look out for? What tips do you have for them? I think, I mean, the main thing, if I'm ever asked to kind of summarize this um, in one thing, it's, it's you need to know your people like really well. So at line management level, regardless of the size of the organization, you really need to understand the pattern of life, um, the way an organization feels when nothing's going wrong. Um, Because it's very obvious when you go in as a consultant or as an outsider, when there's something sort of out of sync, but you have to establish that baseline first. So what people need to know is like who, who, you know, comes and goes People need to not be afraid to question when something seems out of place. Uh, and so the biggest tip really is know the people and get and make sure people understand that it's part of it, the security of the company is linked to their own personal security and that they won't be blamed for getting it wrong. Now, if a company manages to do those types of things, um, they, those are the types of organizations where we do get questioned, where we do get challenged. Um, and very often it's by people who, I think a lot of the time aren't considered as important as others. So we might be questioned by a cleaner or by a receptionist or by someone who's only just started working in the company, be very junior. But what they know is if you see something that doesn't seem to fit, um, it's better to report it than, than let it, you know, let it slide. Um, the truth is that a determined attacker will get in um, and from a human and, and sort of physical infiltration point of view, we, we, think very carefully about how we pull the con and how we uh, do the job, but you can slow it down and you can make it easier to detect. Um, Obviously looking at the basics of security, but having people really aware of what might go on, knowing your people, if they seem, you know, if someone sits at their desk and they're a little bit, seem to be a little bit distant and thinking about something, checking in with people, it's really, it's a people-based hack. So it's a people-based solution uh, and those type of things really will um, help protect you as much as throwing millions at cybersecurity or anything else, because uh, we're not really that, it's not that we're not interested in it, but we're not that worried about that side of it in my company. We're worried about how someone can be exploited, how someone innocent or otherwise could be exploited within an organization to let us past. Um, and your line of defense is, is knowing your people really well. Yeah, I've heard you say in the past, there's no point in having a giant fortress if you just leave like the side door open. Yeah, if I if I knock on your side door and say, you know, I'm here to clean the windows and you just <laughs> let me in, 
then the huge bolts on the front door and the guards and everything else is just irrelevant at that point. And unfortunately, that still is the case in a lot of places. One of the real problems organizations have is that if you work within an organization, it's very difficult to get that attacker perspective that someone who's an outsider has. Um, it's lateral thinking. It's not really understanding, uh, you know, acutely what the rules are. So therefore you don't really obey them. Uh, and I can give you an example. You know, I had a client who asked us to break into a company in London. And it was a very young and sort of trendy, fashionable PR company. So you can imagine uh, the offices were, oh, you know, four right. floors up, shared building. But the offices are amazing. There's foosball tables and fridges full of beers and everyone's on a Slack channel talking about smoothies and, and, and fitness and things mm-hmm. like that. And that client said to me, you know, we want you to get in however you can, Mm -hmm. but we think we know how you'll do it. And of course, at that point, I do what you've just done and go, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. A very very good, uh, actually, elicitation technique. So a very good technique to get people to just keep talking is to repeat the last couple of things that they say, smile and nod your head. So you go and nod your head, right? And people just keep going. So, So I said, you know how we get in. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, and what he told me was there was, because they were very sort of young demographic and they were very fit and healthy, and also in London, many of them cycled in to work and they needed a place to put their bicycles and then go up to the office and have a shower and get on with their job. And he said, that's the best way in. Now, you know, this is someone who's employing me <laughs> to break into their building. And if this was real life, you wouldn't tell a burglar, you know, my house is fairly secure, but, you know, I'll leave this, I'll leave this one door open just, you know, because I need somewhere to park my bike type thing. Um, and in some ways uh, that, that makes, it makes the job easier, but then it makes it uh, not real for the client. We try and replicate reality. You know, what is the art of the possible if I was a burglar, if we were a criminal gang? And so on the one hand, that is, uh, that, that, that's one thing that happens. What I prefer is, is a job that we've got coming up where all I have is an address and a name. Uh, and that's all I have. Um, and we, and I've given the client, we give them a sort of a, a window of, of a month or so. And I just say to them at some point during that month, we will be in your building. Um, we're not going to tell you how we're going to do it. Uh, he's not telling me what he wants us to take, what he wants us to access. We're just going to go in and kind of within the realms of the law and our own morality, because obviously we stop short of hurting anyone or, or, or breaking anything. But but we, we within the realms of that, we'll just be in your building at some point. And we won't tell you how we get there until afterwards. We won't tell you when and we won't say how long. But I promise you we'll be inside your facility uh, at some point in you know this particular four-week period. And I kind of prefer that um, because it's it's very difficult if someone tells you the best way in to, to see other ways. And that's the problem with an internal team. You know, they know the best way in. So they maybe wouldn't think about laterally about other things that you can do. And, and, and that's really where we come in. That's really, I think, what we're known for in the business, what I'm known for, is that idea of something that no one, you know, you might not have thought of that. Well, we, I thought of it because I wasn't technical. So I didn't have technical expertise to help me. So I had to think of simple ways in and and of human-based ways in. Even before Jenny became known as the people hacker, she had worked in negotiation intelligence, especially in training others in advanced and effective techniques. 
And if we go even further back, her family's always been involved in the security business. But in her earlier years of getting past locked doors and intense conversations, social engineering itself hadn't yet become the popular term it is today. You're what we know in the industry as a social engineer. Um, how did you come to end up here? Um, I know that you used to have a history in supply chain and negotiations. Um, how did that kind of transition happen? Uh, so I, I kind of did have a, a, a more usual job, but I'd always uh, done physical infiltration. So it's only really the last kind of 10 years, and particularly in the UK, that anyone would even have known what social engineering was or what a pen test was. So we did it. It was very clandestine. It was kind of done as a sideline and I needed uh, a regular income. And, and so my skills um, all come under that kind of umbrella of human uh, behavior and influence. Um, uh, but but it was, re- you know, sort of the last decade or so that we were able to kind of come out of the closet and say, yes, we are uh, effectively uh, burglar for hire, um, but that we do that on the side of uh, the angels and that we, uh, help protect you in case the real bad guys try and do the same thing. So I kind of always had the job, but uh, it's only become respectable to say it in the last decade. For the cons that you you pull off, you talk to like real criminals and kind of learn from that experience, or how do you learn to advance your skills? So I did have some mentors in the past, uh, some of whom are still around and some of whom are not. Um, but I was largely self-taught and experiential. So, you know, did a lot through experience and making mistakes back in the day. And then a lot of <clears throat> interest generally in humans and in deception, you know, so we did a lot of deception and credibility work uh, with various um, law enforcement and others and as an investigator as well. Um, and then um, I guess trying to find it all sort of comes down to this trying to find a way in right and 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 thinking to myself well what would be the best way in here would it be um a distraction technique would it be um you know uh something like so you know b team is a distraction technique uh would it be uh something sort of more um simple than that and and actually just to get to that because this you'll be interested in this in terms of the cons you know on in films it's always quite complicated, right? Because it's it's great to watch something very complex unfold. But actually in in real life, the best thing to do is to keep it very simple. And I was taught this very early on um, by someone who, who would sort of fall into the category you just asked me about. Um, but we, you keep it as simple as you can. So even if you put weeks of preparation in, you have a very complicated sort of uh, rolling con. So lots of different things happening at once and people passing to each other. Sometimes you arrive at a site and, and it's very simple. You just manage to walk through, you know, nothing about your intelligence beforehand or your surveillance has given you that, um, that idea that it'd be simple. And then it just is. And at that point you go with the tactical situation. And if the tactical situation says none of what you've done has mattered before, you can just walk through, then that's what you do. And so I think, I think those are the kind of lessons I was taught. Where I was taught you keep it simple, you keep it short, you keep human interaction to a minimum. Um, and you don't kind of show off. You don't do something. Basically, I was told very early on, and, and there was curse words in it, which I won't use, but it was like, do not do something <laughs> stupid. You know, the biggest piece of advice is don't be right. stupid. And it sounds uh, like, how can I work with it? But I know what they mean, you know? 
So tactical awareness, then just going with what happens is, is a huge kind of life lesson that I learned. And it served me very well on the job, as is keep it as simple as you possibly can. The more complicated a lie, a deception, a con, a fraud is, the more difficult it is to maintain. So the, the easiest lies, uh, and, and, and social engineering is basically a deception, a lie, are the simplest uh, lies because we only have so much bandwidth in our brain. And once you start introducing complexity, variables, it's difficult to maintain. So how do you manage, I guess, your online persona? And does that ever conflict with your uh, your work? Does someone recognize you? It's like, oh my God, I've heard your podcast before. Well, and I was also on TV, right, in the UK, because there's, we had a show in the UK, but I wasn't on it very much. I mean, I think, I think I still look very generic. You know, I'm not, I'm not like super stunningly pretty or anything that, that I attract attention. And I don't look particularly, you know, there's not, there's nothing really, if I want to, there's nothing really much about me that stands out. I mean, I've got tattoos recently and I would never have done that before, but that's partly connected to what you're saying is that, you know, if you start to put a YouTube channel out and you start to put um, podcasts out and you speak at many events within our community, within the security community, your face becomes quite well known. But, but in the big scheme of things, nobody knows really who I am or notices. So as a social engineer and as an entrepreneur, um, do you ever see those skills kind of overlap? Do you see parallels between those two worlds? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yes, in as in a, in as much as I think, really linked to what I just said is that you know to be really to be to be good at something, and I mean I you know I don't have um, a massive amount of imposter syndrome about the job. You know I know that I've done this job a long time, and you know I, I, we do it well through hard work. Um, uh, so I never take for granted that I have a job that I love. Um, but I also kind of. I'm not going to shy away from saying, you know, I really work for this and, and made sure that we were successful as we, you know, such as we are. And I think that's true in entrepreneurship as well. Um, for, for us running the businesses, I, I've been, um, self-employed, if you like, for a really long time. Um, I mean, it's over. I mean, I was a trainer. I hate to say it because when I look at it, I think, oh my God, but, uh, you know, at least 20 years. And, um, and we've had businesses fall and go under. We've had times when uh, I've had months when we, we, we've banked in a month as much as I've earned in an entire year, the year before. And then we've had days when literally we were kind of looking in the deep freeze to see if there was anything we could turn into like a pasta sauce because there was no cash. So I think, you know, sometimes entrepreneurs, you know, you run your own business. What happens is, you know, you have those highs and those lows. I think the reason that I still did it and we kept going, even though I felt like giving up a lot of times, it was because the rewards of that fit in very much with what social engineering is, which is I never wanted to really report to anyone. Uh, I never felt that I was part of like a, a standard corporate structure, even though I did work in corporate and train corporate now. I used to work there. I was always apart from that and always somebody who was observing it. I always felt like an observer on the outside and was observing the way people acted in groups and individually. And that's very much what a social engineer does all the time. The fact that I never called it social engineering for a long time um, is just a function of, of the way the world's changed. That now uh, we're in this world where you can be an entrepreneur, where you can start a business from your desk, work really hard and get a brand recognition, 
get people to care about what you say. Um, that to me is an amazing, we live in an amazing time, but it's also amazing that I can be a social engineer and come on shows like this and even on uh, mainstream media and say, this is what I do. I break into buildings for a living. And rather than people say that makes me a bad person, people say, well, that's fantastic. Tell me what you think about, you know, entrepreneurship or security. So, you know, there's parallels right across the two, I think. So as you said, like there are days where things can be really hard um, or possibly even weeks or months. How do you avoid burnout or what do you do for fun or self-care, anything like that? So we have less of those now, but I mean, certainly in, in the beginning, I mean, honestly, the real truth of that whilst we were building the businesses would have been almost nothing, um, almost no downtime whatsoever. Um, obviously I try and spend time with family and do some stuff, uh, subsequently, but gen generally speaking, I didn't really do a lot of that. And we, we work flat out all the time, uh, and, and everything's fine until the, the minute it isn't. Uh, and it comes, it tends to creep up and, you know, some people can feel it coming. I think when you're younger and you're building the business, you have a lot of energy. It's very difficult to turn around one day and say, actually, I'm out like no gas in the tank. It came out of nowhere. And for me, um, there were times I got sick, um, and there was nothing physically wrong, but I couldn't move. Um, and, and that was sort of my body shutting down and saying, you know, there's enough now. I mean, I was vegetarian for a, a decade, um, but not particularly careful vegetarian. You know, I didn't really watch what I ate or anything. I just didn't eat meat. And then I had to more or less had to make a choice. I either pay a lot of attention to that diet or I eat more protein. Uh, and I knew I wouldn't really stick to being a, someone who paid an awful lot of, atten of attention to nutrition. So I went back to eating meat and came back up, you know, and, and got kind of more energy from that. Um, so I think uh, nowadays I take a big break. So we are, uh, obviously we're in, in the UK, which at the moment of speaking is still in Europe. Um, and being a European and, and, and wishing that we could stay European uh, from my own personal perspective, we take a, a long holiday in the summer, and most of Europe do. Um, now, that's not to say I'm not working. I am at my desk and I am answering emails and calls, but I don't go and speak at conferences. I don't do training. We don't do anything except the most... Um, uh, severe emergency uh, security work and I spend a lot of time uh, at the beach and I um, I do surf a little bit although I'm not as fit as I was so I, I kind of you know make attempts at it in my uh, older age if you like um, and I spend a lot of time doing that and actually creating content rather than um, doing the things that enable me to create content but I would say to anyone who's, who's building businesses and, and anyone who's in, interested in what they do and passionate about what they do, you need to build in some, some of that downtime because ours is very much feast and famine. You know, we're, we're absolutely busy, 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 busy. And then we take a month off where we're not so busy. Um, it's better to do that regularly, I think. So that's what I'd say. As technology continues to advance, there's also a need for more technologically assisted physical security assessments. One really important skill to learn is OSINT, Open Source Intelligence, a skill that involves gathering lots and lots of data from publicly available sources. To do this, a hacker would comb through things like social media, public records, and search engine results to try to discover as much information as they can about their target. Jenny aims to hire more employees with this technical expertise and improve their social engineering skills so that the company can continue to succeed in the future. Out of curiosity, then, for anyone that was interested in working for you, 
uh, how does that interview process happen? Um, you know, it, from a technical standpoint, you know, someone can show like, hey, look at, I don't know, for example, like look at my GitHub and like, look, I have the technical chops to do this or I have the certification. But how does that work from the human factor side? What do you look for? Oh, well, it, it, we look for, there are certain things that, that I look for in anyone I work with. And mm-hmm. uh, a couple of, first thing is, is, is integrity. And um, by which I mean, um, not claiming to have done more than you have, which in this industry, particularly in the pen testing, social engineering space is endemic, you know? So people will say, oh, you know, I'm a social engineer 10 years or I'm a social engineer last couple of years. And then you find out that they only do vishing calls or, you know, it's only phishing emails and spearfishes, you know, so that, that, that's great. And their skill sets we need, but tell, don't tell me that you've broken into buildings if you didn't, because within a couple of seconds, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to assess that. And, and, and then, you know, if we put you on a job and we've had newbies on jobs and people who kind of tried to, uh, try to uh, persuade us otherwise, um, you know, they'll, it's it, it's a very intense situation and very quickly adrenaline and kick in and, you know, there's no control over that if you're not used to it uh, for many people. And, like uh, you know, some people are a natural at it, but a lot of people will say they've done it. And then when we actually put them in that scenario, uh, not so much, you know, and they, and they, get, they get frightened or, 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 you know, edgy to the point where we have to extract. Um, so I don't like, I don't, I, I would prefer someone came to me and said, I've got a good, you know, I've got a keen interest in this. I'm willing to learn. I'm not going to pretend that I'll never worry on, on an engagement. And then we can, we can work with that. So integrity is one uh, and originality, you know, not copying someone else's work. I think, I think it's those kind of, and, and, and the other thing is th- that we really like is a work ethic. I can't, uh, you know, social engineering uh, assignments are extremely physically demanding. You know, you might not sleep very much. You might have strange hours. It's difficult to eat. It's actually, we we kind of, we don't hydrate very much because, you know, the last thing you need is to need the bathroom if you're, you know, if you're in the middle of something. Um, and I need, you know, and, and I guess we look for people who uh, are willing to do the work to get the result because the job does sound very exciting sometimes and it can be, but there's also a lot of waiting around in cupboards and sort of false um, leads that you go, you know, you can spend a long time on a lead that turns out to be false, you know, in terms of OSINT or in surveillance. So we're looking for work ethic. We're looking for uh, integrity. And then I, I, I guess those are qualities that, you know, you can't, you know, those things you can work at, you don't need education or anything else for those. And then I think as a person, the other thing that makes a really good social engineer is someone who doesn't show off, right, on the job. I need professional attitudes. And the industry is full of people who, who are telling all these stories about the times that they, you, you know, they were on a client's site and they sat in the in the guy's chair and waited for him to come in and, and those types of things. Uh, I leave little tokens and business cards and things in and around clients' desks that have been in their office. But what you, but your job when you go there is to go in and get out. So we're looking for someone who is interested in doing the job for the job's sake and not for some kind of, not for attention or kind of glory of, of sort of saying, look, we managed to do this. You know, ideally you're in and out. Nobody knows that you've been there. Um, and, I, and I think it's that. So I do, I do a whole, um, we just got a course about to come out 
uh, on psycho, you know, uh, advanced psychological methods for social engineers coming out soon, kids. Um, and one of the things I say is, you know, you must not showboat, right? You do not showboat. You are in and you are out because we are replicating a criminal attack. And I, and one thing I can tell you for sure is that, you know, criminals will not showboat any, in a real life scenario, as soon as you start getting relaxed or getting silly, you, you're going to be caught, you know, and there's all these stories of stupid burglars who make, you know, they, they make themselves like, you know, a burger in, in the, you know, they break into someone's house and they make a burger or, you know, or they take photographs with the cameras and, and it's that type of attitude that will just kill it dead. So we look for those qualities and then, yeah, I mean, you know, some of the technical skills people are coming to us with are just, I mean, they blow me away if I can even understand them. Um, you know, I'm famously non-technical and, and I don't claim to be, but like uh, if someone really is and really can work under pressure really well, I, you know, I'm always in awe of that. And, and that to me is the next generation, really. As expected in her field, there are plenty of misconceptions, especially regarding what it takes to actually become a social engineer. What misconceptions do people have about social social engineering or uh con men and women um so i i mean obviously one of them is like that the con doesn't have to be that intricate and like that much like oceans 11 um are there anything else that you've seen that you think is worth correcting so people think just because something simple means it's easy you know actually the almost the most uh, I mean, I, I've been flattered by people who, who I really admire that that I can do this quite well, I guess. And um, one of the things that that some some of my colleagues have said is, you know, to to know that this is the exact point that you that you you put the sign on the door that says please don't close the door, or you speak to that exact person, or that you avoid that room. Those are, in some ways, it seems so easy. Uh, but but simple doesn't mean easy. In fact, to reduce something to its simplest elements it requires skill and it requires patience and, and sort of experience. And I think one of the misconceptions that I see, particularly in the industry, is that everyone can do social engineering. Uh, I mean, I see it with lie detection as well. I mean, I, I, you know, the, there are people I follow on Twitter or I've seen on Twitter and suddenly they put social engineering in their bio. And I'm like, well, okay so what does what does that mean because i think what you think it means is you've tailgated right or you've called someone and pretended to be someone else strictly speaking that is social engineering but it kind of doesn't make you a social engineer you know um it's the difference between i guess reading a, a book about baking great bread and actually baking some great bread right it's like you have to have there's a degree there's degrees here and um of expertise. And I think that's the biggest one is that it's, and also that it's about, and I'm doing a talk in the near future about this. And the talk is called beyond a wink and a smile, because I think a lot of people think that, you know, just being charming, um, kind of talking your way into people and the pe you know, this terrible misconception, in the industry, that people are stupid or whatever is enough to, 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 to make you good at social engineering. Uh, and just to tie that with negotiation, you know, there's plenty of people who don't think they need negotiation training <clears throat> because they've gone in and done a deal without much preparation and it's gone okay. And I always say th that's true, but it's more luck than judgment and we should really load the dice in our favour. You know, I mean, we we did a job on a site which was guarded by uh, Gurkhas. I mean, I spoke about this before, 
but you know the Gurkhas are uh, you know um, Nepalese army and and everything else and um, I think it's Nepal I even got that right actually you just yeah I think so um, and you know these guys are you receive medals in conflict for like you know I think I think one guy I was uh, told about you know uh, defended a position on his own and when they found him you know for like overnight for like 12 hours and in the morning he had just a, a one knife and you know there were 57 enemies with guns at his feet I mean these are serious people and so if you know at any serious level um you know, these are, these are serious gods. Now, I am not smiling my way past one of those guys. However, I could be, I could be so charming, you know, I could have, um, oratory skills, you know, I could be Martin Luther King out there. I, I'm not getting past. You need so much more than that initial level. So that to me is like level one. And I like the people are, are sort of doing it as long as they don't hurt anyone or steal anything. I like that they're trying that out and getting to know the practice because I, I mean I love my job now and I love that other people do but you are not you know to, to, you have to study things you have to put in the work and the hours and the study to get good at something something worth having takes work and that's why when I see you know I read a blog today on a topic that I know by someone who I know has not done anything on it but they've read my blogs and they've read blogs of a couple of other people and they've put together this as like they're an expert on it. And 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 it's to set that in itself is probably the best social engineering they're ever going to do is convincing people that that makes them a social engineer, you know, and props for that. But it, it's dishonest. And the thing is, if we're in the security business, we're in the business of keeping people safe. And if we do that um, uh, through uh, inflating our own ego or, or through kind of convincing people to pay you for something that you're not really very good at and you're winging, um, then at that point that becomes very serious because it is a serious job. And, and, and in real life, people who are fooled by con artists and by social engineers and fraudsters, there's a massive human and organisational and financial cost to that and it shouldn't be taken lightly. Um, and so it's that really annoys me in the business you know you cannot say you've done it at any serious level without some um some experience and, and time behind you having said that sean though there's no qualification that i know of in social engineering you've got people doing some courses uh but it's hard to train people in it from starting in Liverpool, um, in Birmingham, and learning about supply chain and negotiations um, through, you know, years and years of work in social engineering and like the human factor side of security um, and doing your podcast and now your YouTube channel and being on a TV show. Uh, what is one lesson that you have learned and that you would like to pass on to the audience? Do you know what? The, the one thing I would say is to people is you... You don't give up on the thing, you know, work hard and don't give up. If you, if you can focus on what you want to do, there'll be times when you think, you know what, it's just going to be easier to go and sell mangoes on a beach, which uh, props to Mo Alman who said that the other day on Twitter. But, um, you know, there's times you just want to give up. But honestly, um, if you, I, I really do believe that if you really uh, want to get good, good at something and you believe in what you do, as long as it's got some vague commercial return, it's about keeping going. You get back up again when things are thrown at you. Because if I hadn't got back up again on numerous occasions over the last kind of 20, 25 years, uh, I wouldn't be sitting where I am today, which is 
I'm really proud of what we've achieved. I'd love to achieve more. Um, we've made tons of mistakes. Um, but you know, the fact that you'd invite me on your show to speak is, is, is an honor. And, and, and the fact that people watch the channel or listen to the podcast is never, I never take it for granted and it never ceases to make me uh, really happy. So you keep going and you get back up again when you knock down. That's what I would say. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show. No, it's been my pleasure, Sean. It really has. Do you have any shameless plugs, words of wisdom, shout outs, anything for the audience to hear? You can, if you, yes, if you go to humanfactorsecurity.co.uk, uh, or you can see, you can find the Human Factor Security podcast. If you follow the brew, the blue brain logo, you'll find me everywhere. And uh, if you are interested in social engineering, we've got some courses uh, coming up, which will be on the app uh, in the fall. Hey there, thanks for listening. Jenny also has a podcast called Human Factor Security, which is available wherever you can find podcasts. She interviews experts on human behavior, social engineering, business, and life. If you're interested in what Jenny's been up to, make sure to follow her on Twitter at Jenny underscore Radcliffe. If we were able to meet up in Vegas last week, I'm so glad to have met you. If not, and you weren't able to get some stickers, I listed them on our online store. There's a limited stock for now, but we'll be replenishing it soon. If you're wondering what we're up to and want to stay updated, follow us at Hacker Culture FM. As always, I'm your host, Sean Sun. Mary Vong wrote this episode, Jeffrey Q made the cover art, and Rob Didio worked his audio engineering magic. Special thanks to Jenny for an awesome conversation, and we wish her the best at Human Factor Security. And of course, thank you, listener, for tuning in. And while I say this every episode, I genuinely mean it. Two weeks ago, we made it to the Apple Podcast Top 200 Technology Podcast list. For the first 24 hours, the entire team just <laughs> we couldn't believe it. There were laughs and tears and virtual pets all around after we realized finally that it was real. So we couldn't have done it without you. And if you're still listening to these end credits, it would mean the world to us if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure to tag your Instagram or Twitter handle because the first time to do so will get a shirt from me free of charge, no shipping fees, no BS, just a way for me to say thank you. As always, you can let us know what you thought of this episode by tweeting at HackerCultureFM or emailing me at Sean at HackerCulture.FM. I love to hear what you think about how we're doing and use your feedback to improve the show. And just a reminder that we are now a bi-weekly show for now. Make sure to check out some of the other shows from the Hacker Culture FM Collective. You can find all that good stuff by going to HackerCulture.FM. That's HackerCulture.FM. There, you can also find some really cool merch that directly supports your favorite creators. From Hacker Culture FM, I'm Sean Sun. See you in two weeks on wherever you listen to podcasts.